James 5, 1 through 11. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid upon treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, sisters and brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, sisters and brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The word of the Lord. So this morning, we are finishing our series on uh, the book of Job. The book of Job is all about how to do life as a follower of Jesus. In essence, Joe, uh, James asks the question, okay, you say you're a Christian? Great. But if that's the case, then here's what your life ought to look like as a result. Does it? That makes James a really practical book because it gives us practical guidance about what the Christian life should look like. But the book of James is also really in your face. Uh, and this morning's passage is probably the example par excellence of that. In fact, as this bulletin was going to print this week, I was looking over the passage again and I thought, yikes. Are we really going to read this out loud in the heart of our sophisticated, educated, secular, Central West End neighborhood of St. Louis? I think the only thing that would have made it worse was if we used the King James Version. Um, or maybe that would have made it better, I don't know. But, you know, go to now, ye rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon ye. You know, it's really harsh language, but that's the point. This passage is like a blind spot alert. It's like, you know, nowadays cars, when they're making them, they put um, warning lights on the side view mirrors that give you a warning light. And that actually will beep at you if there's another car in your blind spot. The idea is that um, it would be really easy for you to be driving along and think that it's perfectly safe to change lanes, all the while not realizing that there's another car sitting right there in your blind spot. The results could be disastrous. They could be fatal. When it comes to money, we need a blind spot alert. Um, but here's the thing. When it comes to money, 
most of us don't really think that this passage applies to us. Most of us don't really think that we need to hear this warning, which means that we really, really need to hear this warning. Most of us don't want to talk about this. In fact, you know, there's a reason that pastors don't preach very often about money and greed and wealth. It's because your job approval ratings go down dramatically when you do that. Um, But the fact that we don't want to talk about it means we really, really need to talk about money. So... um, Because there's something lurking in your blind spot that's going to take you out if we don't talk about it. And that something is called materialism. And this passage that we just read shows us three things I want to focus on about materialism, all right? We're going to see the danger of materialism, the nature of materialism, and the antidote for materialism, okay? The nature, I mean, the danger, the nature, and then finally the antidote for materialism, okay? So first, the danger of materialism. Uh, One of the interesting things about this passage is there's a big question about the first six verses where James is talking about rich people. The question is, are these rich people Christians or are they non-Christians? There are actually really good arguments for both sides of that question. Here's why it almost doesn't matter. Um, Even though James is talking about rich people, um, he's definitely writing to Christians. So either way, he intends for us to hear this warning that he's issued. We mentioned this passage is like a blind spot alert. James is saying money is spiritually dangerous, and I want you to be warned about that. So the language that he uses, you can see he's warning us because the language is so harsh. You know, and here's the question. Is, is James just being melodramatic here? Is he just being overly theatrical, just overly dramatic? No, he's not. The language is dramatic because the situation is dire. Um, To change the metaphor, it'd be like if somebody was asleep in a burning house and you raced into the house and you were yelling at them, hey, wake up, but they didn't wake up. You would have to go over to that person and shake them violently in order to get them to wake up and get out of the burning house. James is saying in this passage that because the situation is so dire, the language is so dramatic, James is saying by nature we are blind to the control and the power that money has over our lives. It's actually very similar to the kinds of things that Jesus would say all the time. Did you know that Jesus um, talked more about money and greed than pretty much any other sin when he was preaching? And one of the interesting things, especially whenever Jesus talked about money, a lot of times he would say, um, he would say, watch out. Watch out for greed. Watch out for money. He never said that about adultery. He never said, watch out for adultery. He didn't say that about other sins. He never said, watch out about lying. Why? Well, think about it. It's, it's obvious when you're doing those things. But, but money is different. Jesus was saying, James is saying, that there's something about money that has the power to blind us to the kind of power and effect and control it has over us. So Jesus was always saying, watch out. So here's the question. What is it about money that makes it so dangerous for us? Well, James shows us, he gives us an image that's actually pretty chilling. If you look at verse one, he tells the rich people, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Okay, future tense, they are coming upon you in the future. But then look at what he says right after that. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. In other words, now he's saying, this is something that's happening right now. What is he saying here? 
You know, it's, it's important to keep something in mind about this, that in those days, um, people didn't have bank accounts. Um, their money was not tied up in stock options. Uh, your wealth was carried in things like land or cattle or precious metals like gold and silver. And, and James is saying those things are falling apart right now. But, you know, precious metals like gold and silver, they don't rust. They don't corrode. It would have been very easy for the rich people that James is talking about here to look at all their stuff and say, what do you mean it's falling apart? Looks fine to me. What, what James is saying is, I'm not talking about what's happening to the stuff. I'm talking about what the stuff is doing to you. It's eating you away. Your, um, your riches are rotting. The gold and silver is corroding because your soul is corroding. Your soul is rotting away. It's eating away at you from the inside out. It's actually um, a lot like what happened to the character Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. Do you remember that character? If you've seen the movie or read the book, you know, Gollum, that character actually started out as a rather pleasant, hobbit-like little creature. He had a family. He was part of a community. Um, there was really nothing that much wrong with him until he encountered a magical ring, the one ring of all power. And it began to have so much power and control over him that he actually murdered his best friend in order to get a hold of it. And from that day forward, it began to eat away at him. It ate away at his mind. It ate away at his soul. It ate away at his body. He was literally getting, getting eaten away from the inside out by the power of the ring. And do you remember what Gollum called the ring? The precious. My precious. James is saying exactly the same thing in this passage. He's reminding us of what we were talking about last week. We were talking about idolatry. Idolatry is whenever you take some good thing, like money, which is a good thing. But whenever you take some good thing and you make it more foundational to your ultimate happiness, your ultimate well-being, your ultimate security, um, more foundational to those things than God is, then that thing has become an idol. And whatever that idol is, it eats away at you. It corrodes you from the inside out. Rather than fulfilling you, it actually eats you up from the inside out. James is saying, watch out. And you know the really scary thing about this? Um, James is saying that on the outside, everything could look fine, but on the inside, you're falling apart. On the outside, everything could look just fine. What do you mean? Nothing's falling apart, while on the inside, your soul is actually getting eaten away. If we really understood the danger that we were in, the danger that James and Jesus really are calling us to, it ought to cause heart palpitations in us. It ought to wake us up in the middle of the night with cold sweats to really consider the level of danger that we're in. James is saying it's eating you away. It's rotting your soul. Watch out. It's the danger of materialism. But secondly, we see here the nature of materialism because here's the question. Why is money so corrosive? Why does it have this power to eat us up and rot away our souls? Um, this is really important to understand because uh, James is not saying that money itself is the problem. He's saying it, materialism is the problem. Now, what is that and what does it actually do to us? Take a look with me. James tells the rich people, he says, your riches are rotting and your gold and your silver are corroding. But why? James tells us in verses four and five, in verse 4, he says, Behold, the wagers of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. 
Now, here's what's going on with this. In those days, workers um, always got paid at the end of the day. You did a day's work, you got paid at the end of the day. It wasn't like nowadays where you work and you work and then you get a paycheck once every couple of weeks or once a month, which means that you can kind of save up money so you've got money to last you through those two weeks. It didn't work like that. If you didn't get paid in those days, if you didn't get paid at the end of the day, you and your family were going hungry at the end of the day. Now, that's why James says they kept, that, or you kept their wages back by fraud. In other words, James is saying, you told them that you were going to pay them at the end of the day, but you didn't. Why? Why did they do that? Well, he tells us in verse 5, he says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. In other words, the rich people didn't want to pay their workers at the end of the day because they actually wanted to spend their money on themselves, on their pleasure, on their indulgence. Here's the bottom line. What is the real problem here? The problem is not money itself. The problem is not that these people were rich. The problem is not having money. The problem is that they weren't using money for its intended purpose. The problem is that they were actually misusing the money. Materialism is whenever you only use your money for yourself. It's whenever you only use money on yourself. Materialism is a way of failing to trust God and wanting to have control over the needs of your life, wanting to have control over the deepest needs and desires of your life. We fail God and we want to have control over those things ourselves. And you know, another really scary thing about this passage um, James is talking about rich people. He's talking about people who have a lot of money, but the Christians he's writing to are people that did not have a lot of money. He's talking about rich people to poor people, and he's saying this is a danger for all of us, whether you have money or not, because the the problem is not money itself. The problem is materialism. It's when we only want to spend money on ourselves. That's what the real problem is. So, um, it's, it's a way of actually failing to trust God to, to take care of the deepest needs of our heart. And if you want to know what the deepest needs of your heart are, look at what you spend your money on. Follow the money trail. That'll show you what the deepest needs of your life are. So for instance, I just mentioned we were talking about idolatry last week. Idolatry is whenever you take some good thing and you make it more foundational to your ultimate well-being, happiness, and security than God is. Okay, so that's when we want to take care of the deepest needs of our heart. And last week, we also made this distinction. We said that there's surface idols and there are deep idols. Okay, so surface idols are things like romance or relationships or family and kids or um, your career or your home or it could be things like food or sex or drink or it could be things like money. But there are literally dozens, maybe even hundreds, of what we could call surface idols. But those surface idols are really just a way of getting our deep idols. And friends, there are only just a handful of deep idols. Deep idols are things like approval, power, comfort, and control. The surface idols are simply ways of getting the deep idols that our hearts really want. So, what is your deep idol? Look at how you spend your money. Money is a surface idol that shows us what our deep idol really is. So, for instance, if you spend most of your money on um, status symbols, like clothes or jewelry or uh, cars or flashy things, then that's Uh, an indication that your deep idol could be approval because you want to look good. You care what people think about you. You want to look good in the eyes of other people. Your deep idol is approval. 
Or if you spend your money um, on things that give you lots of pleasure, like food or, um, or travel or entertainment or alcohol or drugs, you know, uh, or uh, TV or, or things like that, that means that your deep idol could very well be comfort. You, you care mostly about your own comfort and your own pleasure. Still other people, they don't use money for those things. Um, some people never spend a dime. They put all their money on the bank and they work and they work and they work and they work and they never spend any of their money. They just put it in the bank. Why? Because money is a surface idol that's helping those people get their deep idol of control. Do you see how this works? There are literally dozens of surface idols that are really designed to help us get our deep idol. And if you want to know what your deep idol really is, look at how you spend your money. Materialism is whenever you use money to serve your own purposes. It's when you only ever use your money for yourself. But James is reminding us here of something that Jesus talked about over and over again whenever he was talking about money. Jesus would always say, he would always remind us that um, that the money that we have in our lives, that we're basically managing someone else's money, God's. And that if we're not using money for its intended purposes, if we only ever use money for ourselves, then essentially Jesus was saying we're guilty of financial malpractice. In fact, when Jesus was talking about money, a lot of times he would tell stories and parables that the, the, the premise of the parable of the story was that we're basically fund managers and, and our responsibility is to manage someone else's money. It's God's money. So if we're using God's money for God's purposes, then we're using money correctly. But if we're using God's money for our purposes, then we're actually using it in an improper way. It's not it's the, in the intended use of money. And the effects will be corrosive in our lives and also in the lives of the people around us. Now, um, that means that in the Old Testament, for instance, um, God's expectation for his people was something called the tithe. The tithe was 10% of their income. And, you know, a lot of you are maybe like, wow, that sounds like a lot of money. You'll be relieved to know that in the New Testament, it never gives a number or a percentage that it says this is what you have to give which means a lot of you right now are thinking, I feel a sigh of relief right now. But here's the thing. In the New Testament, no, you do not see people giving the same amount of money because God never gives a number. What you do see in the New Testament is a level of radical generosity that really goes way beyond a mere 10%. Now listen, I understand that we're all in different places financially. And a lot of times people will come to me and they'll say, Eric, I'm not giving anything right now. And 10% just feels overwhelming to me. And when people say that to me, I always tell them two things. First, God is after your heart. He's not after a number. He wants your heart. He's not after a number. If the, really, if the thing we're mostly concerned about is the number, it shows that our hearts are not really oriented towards God. Our hearts are really oriented to what, what is the bare minimum that we can get by with? Firstly, God is not after a number. He's after your heart. But secondly, I always tell people that financial generosity, financial stewardship is a discipline, uh, and we have to learn how to do it. It's like exercising a muscle. So that, you know, when you begin to go to the gym, you don't just walk into the gym first day and start bench pressing 500 pounds. Um, you have to work your way up to it, right? Those of you who bench press 500 pounds, <laughs> tell us how to do it. Um, or, for instance, if you're wanting to learn how to pray, you don't just begin your first day of prayer by praying three hours or even one hour. You have to work your way up to it. Financial stewardship, financial generosity, friends, it's a spiritual discipline. 
Every bit as much as prayer is or studying the Bible is. It's a spiritual discipline. Why? Because when you learn how to give regularly, when you learn how to give consistently, what that's doing is it's actually pulling your heart off of money and helping you to relocate your trust back on God and off of the money. It's a spiritual discipline. And in order to do that, you actually have to get the rest of your financial house in order because you can't give more in one place without organizing the rest of your financial life. It's, it's, a, it's a holistic, spiritual discipline. So, um, you know, here's one way I heard it put once, and I think it perfectly illustrates um, our attitude towards God's money. Imagine somebody came to you with a pile of money, and they said, I want you to manage my money for me. But here's the deal. I'm going to let you keep 90% of it. I just want you to manage 10% of my money for my purposes, and I'll let you keep the rest of it. What would you say to that? You'd say, where do I sign up? Friends, God's money is intended to be used for God's purposes. And when we use it for any other purpose than his purposes, we're guilty of financial malpractice. James is saying that the the danger of materialism is we're blind to the effects of money over us. The nature of materialism is that we're not using money the way God intended us to use it. When we use it for our purposes, we're not using it for his purposes. That's the nature of materialism. And that really bumps up against our culture, by the way. Because our culture looks at money and it says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What are you talking about? My money is my money. I worked hard for it. I earned this money. Who are you to tell me that it's not my money? It is my money. It's mine. Precious. Do you see what's happening? We've seen the danger of materialism. We've also seen the nature of materialism. But that leads to our last point. Um, We need to see the antidote for materialism. Um, Can we do a little check-in right at this point? It's always good in sermons on money to do a little check-in. Are we feeling sufficiently miserable now? You know, one of the things that happens when we talk about money in church is that the immediate short-term effect is everybody just feels guilty. That's, that's our kind of default response because we know that we shouldn't be selfish. We know that we should be more generous. And so the short-term effect is we feel guilty about it. And the result is, yeah, we, maybe we give a little bit more and maybe we do it a little bit more consistently, but that eventually wears off because guilt eventually wears off. Guilt is never a sufficient enough motivation to really change the deep idol structures of our heart. What will? James actually shows us in verses 7 through 11. Remember how we said verses 1 through 6, it's like one big warning. And whether or not James is talking to Christians, talking about Christians in that passage, in verse 7, he's definitely talking two Christians. And in verse 7, James makes this transition and he says, therefore. Now, whenever you're reading the Bible and you encounter that word, therefore, it's the author's way of saying, here's what I want you to do as a result of everything we've just been talking about. So, so what is James actually saying when he says, therefore? Well, notice what he's not saying. James does not say, therefore, boy, you guys have really been messing up. You really need to pull your life together. You need to get more disciplined and just get get your life together, get your house in order. He doesn't say that. In other words, James does not appeal to fear and guilt um, about something that we're failing to do. What he does is he appeals to a story about something that God is doing for us. Because what does he say? He says, be patient for the coming of the Lord. 
What's he talking about? If you've been with us throughout the series, one of the things we've seen is that over and over again, James keeps tapping into the main storyline of the Bible. What's the main storyline of the Bible? The main storyline is, in the beginning, God created the world, this world, to be a place of perfection and beauty and wholeness. But because of human rebellion, because we didn't want to trust God, we wanted to be in control of our lives, in control of the deepest needs of our heart, because of that, the whole world is falling apart. The whole world is rotting and rusting and corroding as a result of that. But throughout the Bible, over and over again, throughout the course of the Bible, there's a promise that one day God is going to renew this physical, material world. That is the promise of the biblical storyline. The biblical story is not that one day God is going to destroy this world and carry us all away to some disembodied heaven. The biblical story is that one day God is going to renew this world by uniting it with heaven. The, 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 the end of the story is not, is not the end of the world. It's the renewal of the world. That's the main storyline of the Bible. And that's what James is reminding us of here. You know what that is? That's actually the gospel. What, what is the gospel? Gospel means good news. In other words, the gospel is not um, a set of rules and expectations and instructions about what we have to do in order to get God to love us and accept us. The gospel is news about something that God is already doing for us and will do for us ultimately. In other words, the gospel is not, here's what you must do in, in order to work out your own moral self-improvement. The gospel is, is news about a radical intervention that God is doing. That intervention is the renewal of the world. It's the renewal of creation. He's coming. It's the coming of the Lord. You see, James, he talks about it in verse 7. He talks about it again in verse 8. The whole passage is literally dripping with this biblical story that one day God is going to come and renew the world. James is reminding the Christians of where the story is going in the future in order to help them understand how to act right now in the present. That's the basic message of this passage. Verses 7 and through 11 keep pressing this message into us. And the basic message is simply this. If you want to know how to act today, you have to know what kind of story you're in. If you want to know how to act, if you want to change the way you act, you have to know what kind of story you're in. So, for instance, there was a movie about 12 years ago called Stranger Than Fiction. Um, Will Ferrell played an IRS agent named Harold Crick. And um, <clears throat> Harold Crick, one morning, is brushing his teeth uh, when all of a sudden he hears a narrator, a voice inside of his head that begins narrating everything he does. It's like telling the story of his life. And at first, Harold thinks that he's going crazy, um, but the voice continues. And then he thinks, well, maybe somebody's playing a joke on me, but the voice continues. Uh, and so eventually, Harold gets used to the voice narrating his life until that one day comes when the voice announces his imminent death. And so at that point, Harold kind of starts to freak out, and he goes to a psychiatrist, and um, the psychiatrist says, well, I think you're schizophrenic. And Harold says, well, what if, um, what if I was telling the truth, hypothetically speaking? What, what if I really was part of a story, a narrative? Even if it was only in my own mind, what would you suggest I do? The psychiatrist says, I would suggest medication. And Harold says, other than that. And the psychiatrist says, well, I don't know. 
I would suggest that maybe you go see somebody who knows something about literature. So that's what he does. He goes to a literary expert, and he says, literary expert, what should I do? And the expert says, well, it depends upon what kind of story you're in. we got to figure out what kind of story you're in. Because if you're in a comedy, then that means you should act one way. But if you're in a tragedy, well, a tragedy is a very different kind of story than a comedy is. If you're in a tragedy, then you've got to act completely differently. You see, the only way you're going to know how to act is if you know what kind of story you're in. So friends, here's the question. What kind of story are you in? Every single person here, you have something you believe about ultimate reality. You have something that you believe about the way the world really is. And whatever you believe most deeply is going to shape your life most powerfully. So what kind of story are you in? For instance, if you really do believe that, that one day God is going to destroy this world and carry us away to heaven, then it would make sense that you would never really care very much about the physical, material needs of this universe. But um, if, for instance, you believe that there is no God and that one day this world is just going to burn up, it's just going to fall apart, then, then living a materialistic life living a life in which you're only ever focused really on your needs, your flourishing right here, right now, that actually is a very intellectually consistent way to live because um, a lot of Christians actually live that way too. But here's the thing. Even if we act materialistically, and most of us do, even if we act materialistically, we know we shouldn't, right? We know that we should care about this world. We know that, that we shouldn't be so selfish. We know that... That, um, that we should work hard to try and make this world a better place. We know that, that there's something wrong with this world that demands getting set, right? We know all of this, but here's the question. How do we know that? I mean, especially if there really is no God and this world all, is all there is, then by definition, this world already is exactly the way it's supposed to be. By definition, there is nothing wrong with this world. There is nothing in this world that needs to get set right. And yet... How does that explain the fact that all of us intuitively know that there really is something wrong with this world and that it really does need to get set right? The only story in which that impulse makes any sense is this story. It's the biblical story. It's the only story in which that makes sense because deep in every human being, there's, um, there's a memory trace of what this world once was and what this world is supposed to be. And it's in there. As I said earlier, it's like a homing beacon. It's like calling out to us, beckoning us, wooing us, speaking to us, telling us that this world is not all there is and this world is not all it's meant to be. So here's the question. If, okay, if there is a guaranteed, perfect, and eternal future for this material world, then and how should we act? How would that change the way we live? If you want to know how to act, you've got to know what kind of story you're in. If the biblical story is the true story, and it's the only story that makes sense of the yearnings we all intuitively feel, then how should we act? James tells us in verse 7, he basically says, look at the farmer. Look at a farmer. How does a farmer act? If the farmer knows that if there's an ultimate future for this field, then my responsibility today is to invest in the field. In the same way, if there's an ultimate guaranteed future for this material world, then our responsibility today is to invest in that future world right now. That means financial investment. And that's one way, but it's not the only way. But it is one of the most important ways. 
That means that as farmers for a future that's yet to come, we are to invest all of our resources, our time, our vocation, our energy, our attention, our love, our devotion, and yes, our finances in God's purposes for this world. That's God's purposes for evil and fighting against injustice. That's God's purposes of, of healing if you're in healthcare. That's God's purposes of compassion and mercy. That's God's purposes of renewal, like planting gardens and building cities. And the reason we do that is because, because all of that stuff is a picture of the world to come, and all of that stuff will ultimately find its way into the world to come. There's a famous old story about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the founder of the Protestant Reformation. Someone once asked Martin Luther, hey, Martin Luther, uh, if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do today? Pretty interesting question. How would you answer that question? If you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do today? Martin Luther said, I would plant a tree. Kind of a counterintuitive answer, but it's dead on because Martin Luther knew that if the material future of this world is guaranteed, then, then the most um, faithful thing that we could do today would be to invest in that future. And so he said, I would plant a tree because everything that we're investing in in this world, if it's God's purposes, one day it's gonna end up in that world. He would plant a tree. So friends, our responsibility, our obligation now in this world right now, if we know that that's the future that's coming, if we know that that's the story that we're in, that's the story that we're inhabiting, that means that our responsibility today really is to be like a farmer, to invest in the future of this world. So here's the question. How are we actually going to act like that? How are we going to pull our hearts off of money? How are we going to let this story, this biblical story, actually pull our hearts off of living for ourselves? and change the deepest idol structures of our heart. How does that happen? The only way is you have to see the one who's at the heart of this story. Because what happens when we live materialistically? What happens to us and to this world whenever we live for ourselves and fail to use God's money for his purposes? James shows us in verse six, he doesn't really pull any punches. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It means what James is saying, that when we live materialistically, when we only use money for ourselves and never for others, it doesn't just hurt you spiritually. It actually hurts the people around you. It, it creates an unjust society. It, it, it results in oppression and abuse in our society. It actually is condemning and murdering innocent people around us. But at an even deeper level than that, there are a number of commentators who, who say that it's very possible that when Jesus, I mean, when James talks about this righteous person who does not resist, that, that James is actually talking about Jesus. In other words, it's very possible that James is saying that when we live materialistically, when we only use money for ourselves, what we're doing is we're forgetting the true and ultimate righteous one. The, the true and ultimate righteous one who was condemned and murdered for us, who was actually betrayed for what? 30 pieces of silver, a handful of money, and he did not resist it. In fact, Jesus embraced it. Why? I think it's really interesting in verse 7 when James talks about how we're like farmers um, waiting patiently for the world to come waiting patiently over the field. He says that, that the farmer's like a farmer um, waiting for the fruit, but he doesn't just say the fruit. What does he say? He calls it the precious fruit. 
Why is that? He says that this fruit is so precious that the farmer waits for it. The farmer labors over it. The farmer invests in it. Why? Because the fruit is precious. But think about the image. Think about the metaphor. What is it that James says we're waiting for? Yes, it's the world to come, but, but what does he actually say? He says, we're waiting for the coming of the Lord. That means it's not a what we're waiting for, it's a who we're waiting for. That means that Jesus is the precious. He is the ultimate precious one. But Jesus is a precious that instead of rotting your soul and eating your life away, he's the one who will fulfill the deepest needs of your soul because he gave his life away. And not just 10% of his life, not even just 50%. He gave all of his life away for you on the cross. Because why did he do that? The reason is because you are his precious. You are his prized possession. You are his treasure. On the cross, Jesus rotted away so that you could be renewed. And when you see him doing that for you, all of a sudden that begins to change the deepest structures of your heart. That begins to pull your heart off of money, off of materialism, off of yourself, and begin to focus it back on him, back on God, back on his purposes. That's when you see Jesus doing that for you, he becomes your precious When you see him making you his precious, he becomes your precious. And when you learn how to inhabit that story, when that story really penetrates your heart, it changes all the deepest structures of your heart. And it makes you someone who's more and more able to use all the resources of your life for God's purposes in this world because you see the one who used all of his resources for his purposes in your life. It means you learn finally and truly the true story that you're in. And that's what enables you to live the way you live. Let's pray.